Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor at the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Uh, very good, thank you. Excellent. And we're going to focus on uh, property this week because there's been a few noteworthy transactions in that sector, um, one of which you predicted, one of which you kind of alluded to in one of your uh, alpha roundups a little while back. Let's dive straight in and start with uh, Gallifer Tri. Gallifer Tri, a very interesting uh, company. We actually suggested selling its shares uh, a few short weeks ago. And then, of course, there was a, a potential bid for its home building division this week. This is something that I, I alluded to about five or six weeks ago, that despite the huge mess that this company is in with its construction business and no one really seems to know what's going on there, it did, it did have a a good asset that other people would like to have, and and that is the it's Linden Homes uh, house building business. Yeah, and I, and I think the the premise of our sell tip was that not that the Linden Homes business was bad, but that everything else within the group was pretty terrible and could even get worse. And and actually, we were speculating before we came into the studio. Um, just what would be left of Gallifer Try were you to take Linden Homes out? Well, this is it, and I think I think this is the reason. What one of the reasons why Bovis's offer, uh, which looks reason, you know, a reasonable offer. What is it? Uh, it's nine hundred. It, they offered nine nine hundred and fifty million in Bovis shares, and then they would take on the hundred million pounds of private placement debt that Galliford has in place. So total outlay of just over a billion which is generous it's not bad i mean it's i mean you you look at these things on net asset value and looking at linden's net asset value is a bit complicated because of the way that things are moved around within the company but they had they had gross assets which is essentially mainly mainly the land and the work in progress of about 720 million uh, their half year results so they offered you know, a reasonable premium to that. Um, but I think going back to what you've just said about you know, the whole confusion about what would be left, um, I think that one. this is one of the reasons why I think this bid's been rejected, probably because the offer was in shares and not cash. And that essentially, if you take away, Lyndon, you could be left with a mess that's bigger than people think it is. Indeed. So, I mean, just to put the the value of the offer in context, the market cap of Gallifer Chai is just shy of 600 million. There or thereabouts, yeah. So, yeah. so the premium offered for just the house building arm over the market cap is, I mean, it's nearly double. Yeah. Well, not yeah. quite. Well, not quite. But, and then it's, so it's the question is, how much are you taking off? Yeah, for, for the construction. And indeed, and one of the things that the company actually said, which we've mentioned in our tip update, is that one of the reasons that uh, Gallifrey has rejected the bid is uh, to ensure that it has a viable capital structure, uh, and that would imply to me that it only has a viable capital structure when Linden Homes is included. In simple terms, <laughs> if this goes, we're up a creek without a certain paddle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so then you, you know, and, and we also speculated on why uh, uh, Bovis hadn't just taken out the whole lot and shut down the construction arm, and that that's probably that's not the question altogether. Yeah, I, and I think the, you know, it's not difficult to come away from this thinking that this must be absolutely horrible. 
So, so that when these are big long-term contracts, so there's probably a lot of contractual obligation in there, probably some contracts that were underbid or overbid, uh, however you describe it. Yeah, and then there's cash flow, there's cash moving about all over the place, inflows, outflows. It's a dog's breakfast. So it's, it's one of those ones. Where, so even though there is corporate interest in part a big chunk of this business, a very significant premium to the market cap, we've still got the shares on a sell simply because... It's, it's as, as you termed it earlier, it's almost like a poison pill. It, I think it, it is, it is. And the and question is, is what what can you get to, to swallow it? What do you have to take to swallow this? And, you know, you wonder, you know, you wonder that, you know, maybe a, a, a bigger builder, a much, you know, a much stronger financial position because paying, obviously paying, if you pay with cash for this, you're essentially borrowing money if you're a buyer of this. And house builders probably don't want to be taking on a lot of gearing at this stage in the cycle. They've been there before. Been there before. Not well. You know, these, these businesses are very, very sensitive to changes in prices and volumes of, of, of houses sold. And the last thing you really want to be sticking on to a business like this is, is debt. Okay, I mean, a question, another question I, I asked you earlier, which we can perhaps expand upon now, is why does Bovis want to do this? Well, Bovis, Bovis has got, you know, had a few problems, um, you know, in terms of its reputation, its build quality. And, you know, maybe taking on another brand helps sort of diversify away from that a little bit. And, and Lyndon R actually at a slightly more premium end of the market and, and, and actually known as being pretty, pretty good quality. Yeah, it's sort of, it, it might help help Bovis out in terms, but also they, they, may just, they may just be able to see it as a good fit with what they've got already. Um, you know, you throw in things like buying efficiencies because you've got more, you get extra buying power and you think, yeah, I can integrate this into what I've got, get a few efficiencies out of it and make, make this kind of deal stack up. Um, I think the interesting thing for me now is whether uh, someone either Bovis comes back with a higher offer, um, or whether somebody else does, and whether it's whether it's with cash or not, with the caveat that I've that I've just mentioned. It's a big, you know, it's a big meal for any of the builders. Actually, you know, a billion pounds of of outlay, a billion pounds plus. You know, not many of those have got real genuine cash balances as big as that when you take into account land creditors and that's because you're giving it all back to the share cash flows yeah and the directors yeah um i mean we haven't seen an awful lot of consolidation in the house building industry so far could this be the start of a wave as as, as you say as we approach the end of the cycle i don't know this is a truth truthful answer um i i think there's an increasing amount of nervousness in this sector, because I think the good times have have gone. Mm. Um, the big benefit, the big windfall that they've had through the help to buy scheme and the big uplift they've had by selling, getting higher selling prices on land that they bought very cheaply, that's pretty much washed through now. And now we're getting a situation where um, you've got cost inflation materials, labour. You've got builders in the south of England where family houses are pushing 
right up against the help-to-buy ceiling of 600000 if not higher than that, which makes them harder to sell. Um, you know, the levels of discount that are having to be offered, that top end of the market. So it's getting difficult. Should we talk about Telford, uh, who had some numbers this week? Yeah. Uh, and actually, the Telford illustrates how some companies are responding to to the to the rising difficulties, the challenges that, that that house builders face in this sector, it's doing something slightly different, which, yeah. which I know you're keen on. Yeah, particularly in the south. I mean, if you just just to sort of uh, elaborate on the point I was just making, that this six hundred thousand pound threshold um, for the help to buy, which has only got two more years to run for all buyers, and then it becomes a first time buyer only thing. Um, is is causing a lot of problems, particularly in in, in London. And Cress Nicholson, of one of the high profile builders that have been caught out by this, and Telford, um, I think, quite smartly has chosen to take its business in a different direction, and it is moving away from selling homes to individual private buyers and private investors, um, and is doing something called build to rent and this is where it teams up with big investment companies like M&G Invesco Legal and General are interested in this sector who buy the land and therefore they take out the the risk the selling price risk um and essentially you just become a construction business and you build the houses for the investor the investor pays a large chunk up front so you get great cash flow you get lower outlay you have a lower outlay yes you earn a lower profit margin from it but you de-risk the business yeah how do the margins compare i think uh what do you say here 13 percent for the they're about half yeah so if you look at what i mean telford has been in a bit of a sweet spot in london um it's changed it's got some quite rich last year it had some quite rich mix um high value and it was earning 28% margins, and you're making sort of about 13 on build to rent, but you're not laying out the cash. So you're not laying out the cash for the land. You're just buying the materials and employing the labour, and you're building houses, and then you hand it over to the uh, to the institutional investor. And this is changing. This is changing the the way that the company looks. So you're getting quite a lot of of business and turnover coming through, but it's coming through at a lower profit. So the profits are coming down a bit or quite a lot for Telford. I mean, one of the reasons why the share price has been hammered so much is that they have been held back on the sort of more traditional side of the business um, with delays in planning and building out certain schemes, and they're not making as much money as people thought they were going to do, and that's still going to keep going on for the next year or two. So, you know, they were two years ago, they were telling investors they were going to make fifty million pounds of pre-tax profit this year. And they're going to make they make four they've just made forty and they're going to make a lot less than that next year. And they hope it's going to pick up after twenty twenty. But 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 if the market's changing, you could argue arguably look at this company and say, actually it's doing the right thing. It's kind of jumping before it's pushed yeah. into changing direction. Yeah, and I think it's selling into quite an attractive market underpinned by decent long-term fundamentals you know in terms of you know you have a lack of affordability to buy in london you've got a lot of young people who like the flexibility of renting um 
and pension funds that want somewhere for their money. Yeah, exactly. So you've got these three things coming together, and Telford, I think, has been quite smart with this. Um, and it, you know, it obviously it makes it it makes it a standout company in the sector. Um, I mean, whether the, whether the shares are attractive or not, I'm not convinced. We, we talked about you know in the context of Gallifrey Trier, it's the construction side of things which has has proved problematic. Yeah, and you know, one can only assume that the margins there have got. You know, well, then next time. to nothing. Does, does, does moving to construction rather than being the house builder itself, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the, the customer-facing house builder, yeah. does that come with a risk that as more people try to do the same thing, it too will face a margin squeeze over time as a, construct, as a constructor? <sighs> it's it's a, a long-term risk, but it, one it, I, I, I wouldn't it, ignore it. It's, it's possible, but I, I mean, what I would say against that is that these... These house building companies have got very good reputations of being being good at what they do to a certain extent. Take away all the build quality stories that you've seen in the paper and so on. But they they have buying efficiencies. They they're, they're plugged into the supply chain. So so, it's, so, it's, so I can't see a normal bog standard construction company coming along and say, "Well, we're going to build houses now." It's a specific skill set then that these companies have. Yeah, that self and have. Yeah, and and I think they're able to sort of give that kind of sort of peace of mind and security and certainty to the end customer, the 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 investor. Well, the shares certainly look cheap. 11 times forward earnings, yeah. 86% yield. Yeah, the dividend's not growing much, though. They've... Um, but, it's, but they're reinventing the business. Re- yeah, it's going to take some time, but they, did, they have dangled the carrot and said that they are going to pay, looking at paying more, a bigger percentage of their profits out to shareholders. Now, whether that leads to a higher dividend or not, who knows? They may need to do that just to maintain the, the 17 pence a share that they're paying already. But what it does do is it, it releases a lot of assets from the balance sheet. So all this land... Um, and work in progress will get released, and essentially you won't have, you know, you won't, you probably have to change the way that you look at this. So a lot of people look at builders on the basis of asset value. As this company becomes less asset intensive, you're beginning to look a bit more on its more on its earnings and its and its cash flow stream. It is interesting. I suspect other house builders will will be keeping a close eye on. I, I think it's, it's good. I think it's good because what you know, obviously what. If people who understand the house building sector quite well, is that they are essentially geared plays on their land bank, and when the cycle is turning up and prices are turning up, you get a big positive wealth effect to the shareholders to the business from rising land prices from rising house prices, but that also works in reverse. And um, Telford, I like the look of Telford because I, it's becoming de-risked, so that takes. Obviously, takes upside, but if you think that house prices are getting pretty close to the top, and there's more downside risk, this is a share that's quite interesting. The yield on this is getting getting close to six percent now. Mm. It's well covered, uh, even even with a fall in profits next year. It still still looks payable, and um, people will know that I'm not a fan of house builders, and I grumble about them a lot. But this, I'll make an exception for this one. All right, worth a look then. Yeah, let's let's yeah. stick to property. Uh, there's been another transaction this week that uh, that that I was caught your eye. Yeah, which was the takeover of A and J Mucklow. Yeah. by London Metric Property. Yeah, now this you didn't predict the takeover. 
but you told our readers, our listeners and our readers of the uh, of Alpha to have a look at this company back in, when was it? February. Yeah, I think I did garble over this podcast saying that it was a company that I very much liked. Just yeah. a nice, steady, conservatively run family property business. But it, it, it stuck out in terms of the things that, that, that catch your eye because... It's kind of unglamorous and 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 and, and, was, and, was, and, and, and it's sort of northern industrial property. Midlands, player. Midlands, Midlands, yeah, north to me, yeah, <laughs> north to you, <laughs> south to me. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so it seems that you were right that that that, that there is value in, in in this company that someone else has spotted London Metric Property. Well, it was it was trading at or around or even at a slight discount to NAV. I think last time um, last time I looked at it. You're right. I've got it here. I think the net asset value at the time of writing was five seventy-two per share, and the share price was four ninety-five yeah. per share. So yeah, thirteen and a half percent discount to NAV. And then the other thing as well is this business was also very low geared. So if you take those two things into account, take into account the fact that certain elements of the property market, particularly retail, are pretty horrible right now. Um, industrial. Property, warehouses, industrial parks, which Mucklow has made its name and, and, and its reputation in. Nice diversifier, good asset, and you can property guys like like you know, probably people like leverage. You leverage it as well a little bit without making it too risky. And you know, the low the low gearing probably was also quite a factor in this being being bought out. Yeah, so London Metric is interested in uh, expanding its presence to what it calls uh, urban logistics. So I guess this is anything to do with the delivery of stuff yeah. to, you know, through, through e-commerce a lot of the time. Which is, you know, a booming market. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, this is something that we've talked about in our new spotlight this week. Uh, there's another little, little aim company doing this, uh, Urban Logistics, imaginatively named. Um, but we've also got Companies like Seagrow, which have been around a long time, I guess have shifted from pure industrial to, to more of the supply chain stuff. Tritex, big box REIT. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, any, any of these big shed stories? Are, yeah, Lock and are, are Store. Exciting. We've got another one as well, which is more into storage. But again, it's a diversifier. Um, and you just wonder whether you know, people will start looking at these at more of these now. I'm very sad. I'm very sad, actually, to see Mucklow go. It's a share I've owned in the past. In the past. Well, obviously I can't own any shares now, can I? Is it still in your fantasy sip? No. No, it has been, but it's it's been a, it's been um I've always thought it's a very sort of safe safe income play. I think that's what you said at the time. And just conservatively managed as a lot of family owned businesses are. And um yeah, there's not many two of the, not many of these that you can um can get your hands on really in the in the London stock market, so I'm sad to see it go. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one one less source of income, as, as you say, uh, and, and we've obviously discussed that. Quite to death. To death. Um, yeah. I mean, you have actually talked about one company in your uh, your column this week, uh, which is a, a little bit contrarian. Yeah. Um, Imperial Brands. Yeah. Oh, should we talk about that briefly? Because you also talk about National Grid and SSC. We've talked a lot about their dividends. One, I think you believe is safer than the other. I would tend to agree with that. Read the column to find out which, but you don't have to work to think too hard to do that. Marks and Spencer's and Sainsbury's you look at and ask the question of whether they can be fixed. I think we uh, 
They can't. We put the boot in quite heavily as yeah. Spencer's last week, and I think we should give it a week off of, yeah. uh, of kicking. We've done enough there. Uh, and uh, Imperial Brands, um, which which surprised me. This intrigues me, this company, because, you know, I, I totally get fundamentals, the political risks, the health issues, the ethical issues surrounding this industry. Well, actually, there was some terrible news from the tobacco industry this week. Yeah. And um, both, both BATS and uh, Imperial Brands took a bit of a hammering. Yeah. Uh, this is US uh, tobacco it, sales data. Yeah, yeah. It was bad. and But I had a look at this. Imperial seems to be doing a reasonable job of ticking along, you know? You, you think, okay, this is this is going to eventually fall off a cliff when you know maybe no no human on earth smokes anymore. But they they seem to be doing a good job with these. You know, they have these things called next generation products and vapes, vapes, vapes in plain English, and they seem to be doing all right there. And the profits, you know, these these businesses are, are, have. Year after year after year, and this applies to British American tobacco as well. They they're very good at taking cost out. They're very good at, uh, at getting efficiencies, and you know, Brit, uh, Imperial Brands has you know got a fantastic dividend record, and it hiked its dividend by ten percent uh, not too not too long ago when it reported its results. And if you look at the analyst forecast on this, now analyst forecast can be wrong. But they're still saying, you know, the profits are going up on this and the dividends are going up. Now, this is a share that's on seven times earnings and yields over 10%. Um, <laughs> that's that's, that's major territory. It's, it's... Yeah, but it's it's covered. You know, it's covered by profits, okay, about 1.4 times. The cash flows are still there. And you've seen a huge amount of institutional selling out of these tobacco companies. Is, it, is, is that because they don't like the business uh, on its fundamentals or they're selling because there is this big investor shift towards ESG, environmental, I social and governance? I think both. Okay. And I, you know, there's always a certain degree of, you know, you feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about, you know, these kind of companies where, you know, the health, health damage is indisputable. But, you know, I also realise that you know, there are people listening to this, there are people out there who look for bargains, look for income. And you know, I'm not I'm not, you know, saying that I would buy these myself, but I think that they are moral grounds or uh, Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, I have to admit, you know, if I'm looking at looking at myself in the mirror on this, I think, do I really want to own a cigarette company? I don't, I don't but as part of my job, I you know I, I look at you know I look at these companies and I just think this is absolutely hated this company, and the income is not only being maintained, the income's going up. Now, unless this thing, I mean, you know, who's to say that the market isn't wrong on this? Could well be spot on that this is this industry is going to go up in flames. It's a big enough company for you to think that there will be enough coverage out there for the view to be efficient, as it were. Yeah, but you can see it in America as well. You know, with like Altrier and but the, Philip but, Morris. And... But there's there is some pretty 
pretty uh, onerous regulation being implemented out there, particularly around menthol cigarettes, yeah. if, I, if I remember rightly. That's the, that's the cloud over British American tobacco, the, um, the menthol cig- cigarettes. Yeah, but if I remember rightly, these were all always multinational businesses anyway, you know. Obviously, the US was a big market, but... People are still smoking. Yeah. You know, particularly in Asia, emerging markets and, you know... And I went to I went on holiday to Vienna not that long ago. They love it. They love a good old yeah, bag out people, there. And I, they, they haven't even banned it indoors. No, <laughs> people people are you know people are people are vaping. Um, I you know I don't know. All I'm all I'm sort of trying to draw attention to here in a not very articulate or scientific way is something that just looks incredibly cheap. Now, if you you could have held that view for a long time and got absolutely hammered in this. But you know, ten percent yield. There's no dividend. You know, there doesn't look like an imminent imminent dividend cut here, and I'm, I mean that for the next two to three years. You know, <laughs> dividends going up. Ugly share price though. Horrible. Falling knife, if ever, if ever there was an illustration of a falling knife, that that would surely be it. Okay, but it's a falling knife. But if you're getting ten percent yield from here. And let's just say that dividend's maintained for the next three years. So even if you don't reinvest, you're getting 30% of your investment back in three years. Yeah, so, you, so it's got to fall a bit more and you'd have still made... I just think from a you know an observational point of view, just think, how much lower is this thing going to go? Is this going to yield 15? Yeah, yeah. Might. If they're not going to cut the dividend, it, it it might, you know. So yeah, I just I just thought I'd mention that. I think I think it's quite interesting. Uh, the hunt for value, not that value has been. Uh, Nobody a likes partic- value anymore. Nobody likes value anymore. I think Algie's uh, Algie's done his stock screen review this week, where he looks at how all of his various screens that he runs throughout the year have done, and and value has done very 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 badly indeed, and has done for a long time. Um, but I think you know I I, I think about this a lot. And I think you just got, if you look at it, you just wonder that eventually something may change on this because I always encourage people to look at, you know, be like a, like an owner and look at, you know, the cash flows that are coming to you as an owner. And if you look at, you know, the high quality end of the, of the spectrum of the, of the stock market. Which, which incidentally is the area of screening that has done yeah. really very well. Yeah. So you are... You're buying today, you're getting a very low initial rate of return. So the income you get as a proportion of what you pay, you get a very low yield, free cash flow yield, earnings yield, whatever. You need a lot of growth to start getting the same amount of income than buying, say, more of the value type shares. And I think the thing with value is that there's a lot of poor quality businesses, but there are sort of these middling type businesses where, you know, you look at, you know, you look at how, you know, how much growth I have to get um, to get the same amount of income from, from the, the expensive share today by buying the cheaper share today. And a really good example that I've used in the past is Fever Tree. Which you've written about this week. Yeah. Actually. And Britvic, which we talked about on the podcast last week. So Fever Tree is on about 40, 
45 times forward earnings. So turn that around, your income return on investments a little bit more than 2%. Britvix on 15, 16 times or something. So you're getting 6% return as a business owner owning Britvix against 2% owning Fevertree. Just as a business owner, forget about what happens yep. to the share price yep. here. So if I own Fevertree, let's say I own Fevertree and you own Britvic. So you, we each put £1,000 in each. I'm getting 20 quid, you're getting 60 quid a year. So Fevertree has got to triple its profits for me to get the same amount of income from Fevertree as you get from Britvic now. Yeah, and from from where it is that that's looks like a big ask. Yeah, and this is this is the kind of thinking that perhaps doesn't quite resonate at the moment because with shares like Fevertree and lots of other highly rated shares there's a momentum factor into them. This quality approach which I am a big fan of at the right price, is, I think, going too far. There are people out there on Twitter, on the internet, who are blind advocates of quality. They just say, just buy quality, you'll outperform. And they've got plenty of evidence to suggest that that's been the right thing to do in the past. And and there's plenty of very successful uh, funds that have have operated that strategy. Yeah, they're the ones who you benchmark. Yourself yeah, yeah, Terry Smith, Nick point. Train, that, those those people, Keith Ashworth, Lord. I, I just um, think about that the, in their case, they started a long time ago. Yeah, so their so their yield their yield on cost is looking quite good. Um, but if you look at going in and buying those kind of shares today, um, I, I think that quality is so in vogue now that it's you, it's becoming a very, very crowded trade. And you've got to look at where you're going to get, well, you know, ultimately you get your returns as a long-term investor in shares from growth in the income, the profits, the cash flows produced by those companies. Mm. And to get these companies to stack up at current valuations, you've got to get a lot of income growth out of it. And I think there's perhaps a certain section of the investing community, I don't know how big, who just believes that this wall of money that's going into this section of the market is going to keep on pushing these these prices up and they're going to get their return through continued share price and PE multiple and expansion and free cash flow yield being forced lower and lower. That might happen. And that is what has happened but eventually it will stop because you may get a situation where the real driver of this, the profits and the cash flows of the companies concerned, stop growing or hit a bump in the road. And then and then you're left in a very difficult position if you're heavily into this kind of thing. I, I also wonder whether some of the value screening that we've done, uh, some of the value approaches that people have, have taken is... It's giving value a bad name in some sense because you're just looking for signs of sort of distress in many cases. You're looking for cheapness uh, and and without there being any semblance of, of, of underlying quality. Just because something is out of favour yeah. doesn't mean it's not a quality company. 
just because it's been through a tough time doesn't mean it's not a quality company. But not all cheap companies are are good. <laughs> no, no, but I think but I think there's also I mean there's also you know a few few companies out there which sort of catch your eye and think okay they're not really top of the quality threshold and they're not in the real sort of horrible bad business yeah criteria i mean i mentioned britvic another one that's produced you know produced results this week that i i really like is um hollywood bowl okay yeah and th- this is a company that i think's really well managed um doing a really good job with its strategy of making these uh, bowling alleys much more family friendly doing them up making them nicer places to go more people are going they're spending they're growing their profits generating lots of cash paying special dividends and you can you know you can buy hollywood bowl on what 16 uh, 17 18 times forward earnings 18, 18 trailing uh at yeah. half year so yeah, yeah. yeah so, it's not so seven not... probably you know 17 and a bit times forward but you've got it's you know, this is a company that's making good return on capital, good profit margins, close to sort of twenty percent profit margin, good free cash flow margin, and yeah, it's not like an American tech company or a Fever Tree Drinks. And you know, I look at I look at businesses like that, and I like and things like Britvic, which are chuggers, just just steady, reliable chuggers. And I'm thinking if I'm if I was putting new money to work, these are the kind of companies that I'd be looking at. Chuggers. For want of a better phrase. I, I think yeah. it's a good one. I've not heard it used Just... in the stock market context before. I think I think it might catch on. Who knows? <laughs> but it's not, you know, it's not all doom and gloom out there. No, but no. I, and you know, I do have the tendency to stray into that territory. Don't we all? There's but, <laughs> all but, sorts of you know, reasons uh, for, you know, for doing that. There are there are some fish out there that you might want to try and catch. Yeah, yeah, they're just not the prettier ones. Or uh... yeah, nothing wrong with Britvic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, nothing at all. Uh, nothing wrong with Hollywood Bowl, apart from the fact that I absolutely loathe bowling. But mainly because so I'm, I'm utterly useless at it. Although my family go and they I'm, go without me. I'm not a fan, but I, I also uh, also realise that lots of people are. Yeah, I don't, and, I never understood um, it. The finance director of Hollywood Bowl is a really good guy. Actually, he he um, he's good at um, he's quite active on Twitter, and he he um, he's very good at um, communicating with uh, private investors and you know answering questions and that kind of thing in a very decent way. That's good, and I think that's always a very good. Uh, very good sign. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, actually, they are. I noticed in the result that we've written up in the magazine that they're uh, opening mini golf centres alongside their uh, yeah. bowling areas. Now, I do like a bit of crazy golf. So, yeah. uh, if it's indoors as well. Yeah, perfect. You know? I'm there. And you probably can get a pint at the same time. He's, Everyone's all I think you definitely can get a pint <laughs> at the same time. But um, nice business. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's good to end on a, on a high note, on a positive note. <laughs> So just to talk you through what else we've got in the magazine, uh, we have uh, a sector focus uh, written by our new uh, mining correspondent, Alex Hamer, looking at uh, the mining royalty model, which is a very interesting play 
uh, on the uh, the commodity sector. Lots and lots of results, although it's getting uh, a little quieter now as we head into the summer. Uh, lots in the personal finance and fund section, which they will no doubt talk about on their podcast. Alex Newman has, uh, has taken a look at the private equity uh, investment industry in, uh, in this week's further reading column uh, to see how the returns model works there or doesn't, as the case may be. Lots of news, lots of comments, as per usual. And this, the, uh, the cover feature this week is the top 50 ETFs, looking at our annual roundup of uh, all the best ETF options uh, out of the many, many hundreds on the UK market that, uh, that, it, that investors can, can put uh, a nice little sort of diversified portfolio together from. So uh, thank you, Phil. And thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine and all good news agents, top 50 ETFs, or get online and subscribe. See you later.